This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. There are few essays written, at least by Americans, that have done more to change the world than Henry David Thoreau's On the Duty of Civil Disobedience. It has inspired and it continues to inspire activists all around the globe, most famously Mahatma Gandhi in India and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the American South. It's been cited in movements in America to oppose the draft during World War I and World War II. It was cited in Europe, uh, most notably in Denmark, encouraging resistance to the Nazis. Vietnam protesters have cited it. It is celebrated and studied as an iconic piece of protest rhetoric all over the world. Which is pretty remarkable when you consider how relatively little attention it got during Thoreau's day. He originally delivered it twice as a lecture at the Concord Lyceum in 1848 under the very long title, The Rights and Duties of the Individual in Relation to Government. Elizabeth Peabody, better known as the woman who opened the first kindergarten, published it the following year under the title Resistance to Civil Government in her publication, Aesthetic Papers. It wasn't retitled on the duty of civil disobedience until 1866. That is four years after Thoreau's death. His sister, Sophia, reprinted it in a collection of his work. Most people believe that it was actually Sophia that gave it the new title. I would like to say it is definitely an improved name. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) In a nutshell... Thoreau is angry, and this is a very articulate manifesto, not against the government. It's not even against the villains who are committing immoral acts. The essay is targeting people who exist within a governmental framework that acts against their own stated moral code, living with themselves by accepting this particular argument, an argument that says, what can I do? I'm just one person. 
And really, when you think about it, that's most of us. I mean, all of us will say, I don't agree with this thing or this thing the government is doing, but I'm really just not that involved. I'm not doing anything wrong. You know, this is the attitude that Thoreau is challenging. He's answering that claim with an action plan of what you could do along with an accusation. He's not just telling us something to do. He's challenging us to act in a way that is consistent with our moral code, claiming that we absolutely must behave in a particular way if we claim to have any kind of integrity as a human being. And by integrity, I'm using that term to mean you're acting consistently with who you say you are as a human. So in the first chapter of Walden, you know, the one titled Economy, Thoreau goes on, among other rants, a very long rant about being a good person instead of just doing good deeds. Uh, Emerson goes on a similar rant. You may remember in Self-Reliance when he talks about people who claim moral virtue because they support all the right causes, but these are the same people that are schmucks in their private lives. I mean, both Thoreau and Emerson claim that the world does not need any more do-gooders. And and by do-gooders, they're very specific. People that parade around cloaked, that's the word they term, in morality. So Thoreau takes up another notch. Uh, He's attacking what Dr. King would later attack and call, quote, shallow understanding from people of goodwill. Or another term that Dr. King used, lukewarm acceptance. Mm, lukewarm acceptance. Um, yes, and I, and I think this is a very important distinction to make. Uh, first, let me say that Thoreau was not the leader that Gandhi or King were. Um, he did not lead any cause, per se. Uh, he's distinctive because he coined the term civil disobedience. And he uh, put into a didactic essay the ideas that the Western world had seen portrayed as early as 441 BC in Sophocles' play Antigone, Gandhi and King both were notable because um, they bravely implemented in large-scale ways the ideas that Thoreau was dreaming about and from the relative safety of Concord, Massachusetts. And all three of these men can claim to have been thrown into jail, but I don't think anyone would argue that the stakes for Thoreau were, <laughs> they were not anywhere near what they were for Dr. King or Mahatma Gandhi. No, true. And for a guy who really just wanted to live outdoors, keep records of the natural world, stay away from what he would consider mundane affairs, this is the same guy who said that reform was one of those professions that was already full. (laughs) It was during his lifetime. I mean, social movements were his mother's thing, his sister's thing. I mean, they were the abolitionists of the family. I mean, he was definitely anti-slavery for sure. But he preferred to stay aloof. Let me use his words. He wanted to, let me quote him, preserve and increase susceptibleness of my nature to noble impulses. First, try to observe if any light shine on me. And so that's very lofty language. But yet here we see writing, he's writing an essay that's provocative, so provocative that it was used to move the power of the British Empire. Gary, give us some history here. What is going on in his world that would get Thoreau so fired up that he not only writes this essay, 
But after this essay, and we're not going to have time to talk about this, a few years after it, he goes on to you know promote actual violence in some ways. <laughs> well, uh, there are two things, really. And the first and the most significant is slavery. This essay begins and ends with slavery in mind. And, and I think we must keep in mind that this essay is not directed at Southern slave owners. That's the interesting part. He's not going after people who hold other people in human bondage. He's going after the world who just sits around and lets that happen. Uh, This is one reason why this essay has remained so relevant over so many years. The primary human rights issue, which is at the heart of a free society, has still, you know, not gone away. No, and sometimes we don't think about that. You know, slavery has actually gotten worse, uh, even though nobody that I know claims to support it. Uh, there is still an active slave trade in our world, almost in every nation of the world, including the United States, Thoreau's home country and our home country. I mean, according to the International Labor Organization, 27.6 million men, women and children exist in forced labor situations all over the world. If you add other kinds of slavery, like child soldiers and child brides, that sort of thing, the number of slaves today goes well over 46 million. And I think a lot of people would be shocked to know that, that that's still going on. And if we look at human history, human slavery is an institution that's existed from the very beginning of time, and no one has clean hands. And in the northeast corner of the United States, the area where Thoreau lived in the 1840s, like most of us today, most people were against formalized government-sanctioned chattel slavery. Uh, slavery wasn't practiced in Massachusetts, and it wasn't something that was really in their face that they dealt with every day. Most people didn't have any contact with any slave owners, and they were vehemently opposed to it. And to use our way of displaying political awareness, you know, the modern day version, there would have been signs uh, against it in yards and all their Twitter accounts would have the appropriate anti-slavery positions. And they were living their lives in their communities. uh, And this was a problem for the South. And However, a few things started to happen that brought this institution into the mainstream consciousness. And uh, one significant event happened in 1842. A man by the name of George Latimer and his pregnant wife, Rebecca, had escaped slavery and they fled to Boston. George was identified there and he was arrested as a fugitive slave. The arrest got a lot of attention in the press and it was not well received. And, uh, you know, let me quote a local newspaper from the day. Boston was, without a doubt, the most potentially violent city in America. You know, another example uh, I'll give happened in 1844. A uh, conquered native by the name of Samuel Hoare was expelled from the state of South Carolina for asking southern states to recognize the rights of free black sailors. And again, this was this popped up on the social radar there in Concord. And there were lots of incidences like this and uh, some bigger deals than others. But things really blew up huge with the Mexican-American War in 1846 when Thoreau was living at Walden. Uh, the U.S. annexed Texas and the rest of the Mexican session, which Mexico considered to be their territory, it literally sending troops in the contested area. Thoreau calls this a war of aggression, uh, which alone is a terrible thing, which we can't downplay, but there was more to it even than that. The Mexican-American War has as a subtext, or one of its main themes, it was about slavery. Democratic candidate and slave owner James Polk was elected president on the platform of expanding the U.S. into Oregon and California with the express purpose of creating an opportunity for the expansion of slavery into the West. 
Polk personally believed this needed to happen if the institution of slavery were to survive, and he wanted the institution to survive. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize President Polk owned slaves. Oh, yes. Uh, He actually uh, bought slaves even during his presidency, and 13 of which were children. The youngest was 10 years old. They worked on his Mississippi plantation. You know, in Polk's mind, as well as other like-minded politicians, westward expansion was the opportunity to bring new life into slavery. This is the context of the essay, and as we read it, uh, we see specific references to these very issues. And I want to throw in one more historical item. There was one point where southern states actually wanted to start a war with Spain to take Cuba to turn it into a slave state. So we had southerners willing to spark an international war to extend slavery inside our country at this very time. Yeah, I guess we don't understand all the implications of how that affected uh, all, all these things. I do think uh, that we misattribute this first line of this essay when I've and, you know, originally thought it went belonged to Thomas Jefferson. You know, let me let me begin the essay and then let's see what you think. I heartily accept the motto that government is best, which governs least. And I should like to see it acted up to more rapidly and systematically carried out. If finally amounts to this, which I also believe that government is best, which governs not at all. And when men are prepared for it, that will be the kind of government which they will have. Government is at its best, but an expedient But most governments are usually, and all governments are sometimes, inexpedient. You know that word expedient, it's not a word we use often, but it means practical. You have to have it. And so Thoreau starts his essay with this idea, we create governments because we have to. We have to have something to organize ourselves to help us solve problems. We can't not have government. But the problem is, it becomes the problem. And at the very least, it often enables bigger problems instead of solving them. You know, what's interesting is that this near the same time in history, Karl Marx is writing his Communist Manifesto. So we've got the thesis and the antithesis right here. You know, this is a uh, Thoreau statements for the opposite of Marxism. And uh, so anyway, the Magna Carta in Great Britain began the tradition in the West of moving towards a uh, more honest and accountable government of self-rule. And this idea has evolved since 1215 in regard to what it means to really respect the individual, which is Thoreau's chief concern, not just in civil disobedience, but in Walden as well. Uh, but leadership is always going to be problematic. We cannot live in a world without structure, but the structures are at best imperfect. At worst, those structures are agents for aggression and subjugation. Right. And he introduces this problem, which, you know, Karl Marx had to have the same problem, too. Uh, how do you how do you address this? The government itself which is the only mode which the people have chosen to execute their will, is equally liable to be abused and perverted before the people can act through it. Witness the present Mexican War, the work of comparatively a few individuals using the standing government as their tool, for in the outset, the people would not have consented to this measure. Let me say I was quoting... (laughs) <laughs> Good. You know, I want to interject another random historical note right here. Uh, there's a young politician you might have heard of named Abraham Lincoln. Uh, his first notoriety was his opposition to the uh, Mexican War on these very grounds. And anyway, uh, governments uh, often do things that we do not agree with or sometimes even things that are immoral. And 
governments also claim to do things we do agree with, but do them so poorly, um, or the agents in charge act so corruptly that the true intentions of the laws are not served. And Thurl will say uh, even the good things that governments take credit for are not a credit to the government. Instead, they are the credit of good people. Uh, implying that good people will do good things with or without government. And, you know, listen to how Thoreau puts it. There's a quote. Yet this government never of itself furthered any enterprise, but by the alacrity with which it got out of its way. It does not keep the country free. It does not settle the West. It does not educate. The character inherent in the American people has done all that has been accomplished. And it would have done somewhat more if the government had not sometimes got in its way. <laughs> you know, Thoreau understands that governments are manipulated by people in power and that those people are often very corrupt. The argument in civil disobedience is going to rest on the idea that we must be citizens with a conscience and that we have to live out our convictions to live moral lives. However, by doing this, we will put ourselves in conflict with government almost by necessity. I mean, he's going to say we cannot decide what is morally right or wrong. We can't depend on voting to do that. He likens voting to gambling or gaming. Let me quote him here. We should be men first and subjects afterward. The only obligation which I have the right to assume is to do at any time what I think right. And it is true enough said that a corporation has no conscience. But a corporation of conscientious men is a corporation with a conscience. Law never made men a whit more just. <laughs> That's true. Law is about the lowest common denominator of behavior. But, you know, I want to point this out why he's referencing uh, this whole idea of corporation. Uh, in 1848, it was still a fairly new concept. And uh, the corporation became a huge part of the market revolution that hit the United States. And corporations, uh, basically, are, uh, it's a business that's owned by a group of people instead of a single owner. And it's a new business arrangement. Uh, it allows businesses to raise capital in amounts never dreamed of before. So now businesses can be enormous. It allowed companies to raise all kinds of money. Uh, you know, they were something that had never existed in America before. And with corporations came immense wealth, the like of which we had, had never been seen on the American continent before. Thorough, as we know from Walden, doesn't like money in general, uh, but he's very skeptical of these big non-human wielders of power and the effect this would have on the morality and the consciousness of the power brokers. You know, he's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, He is not wrong. <laughs> the, his explanation reminds me of Aung San Suu Kyi. If you've listened to our episode on her, you know, and, and her demonstrations of civil disobedience in Myanmar, she made a very similar argument in her speeches about each person's ability and necessity to say no to the corruption that comes uh, with money. I mean, Thoreau uses a famous metaphor here. He'll extend this metaphor all the way really to the end of the essay. He's going to say that the state uses our bodies like we use a machine to execute its own will. It uses us, people, as soldiers to protect us, but it's not just soldiers. It uses us as tax collectors to allocate money. It uses us as jailers to guard those you know, who are, are public risk. It uses us as prosecutors to identify people that are a risk to the public. 
and everything really. Although those things that I just listed, soldiers, jail keepers, tax collectors, prosecutors, in essence are all good things and they're all expedient things. Just like any machine, they can be used for evil purposes as well as good ones. And he further lays out something about machines that applies to government. Quote, all machines have their friction. And possibly because of that, this does enough good to counterbalance the evil. Let me quote him again. At any rate, it is a great evil to make a stir about it. But when the friction comes to have its machine and oppression and robbery are organized, I say, let us not have such a machine any longer. In other words, when a sixth of the population of a nation which is undertaken to be the refuge of liberty as slaves and a whole country is unjustly overrun and conquered by a foreign army and subjected to military law, I think that it is not too soon for honest men to rebel and revolutionize. What makes this duty the more urgent is the fact that the country so overrun is not our own, but ours is the invading army. <laughs> you know, in other words, uh, people as machines often is enough to keep the machine in line. Um, however, in this case, uh, in his opinion, the machine has not counterbalanced the potential for evil in the system. And, you know, this, of course, is the indictment of the reader. Remember, this is in 1848. The United States is only in its second generation. The parents of the people in the crowds that Thoreau was addressing had grandparents or parents who likely fought in the Revolutionary War or at the very least can remember their parents' accounts of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. The Revolutionary War that brought the concept of freedom to the world happened on the American continent, and it was literally fought in Thoreau's backyard behind the old manse. If you go to his house, you can stand in the backyard and throw a rock and hit the North Bridge where the first battle was. You know, Concord is proud to be one of the communities that invented freedom. Uh, the subtext would not be lost on his original listeners. Um, you know, why were they so willing to give it all? The word in a nutshell is it, it's greed. We do it for money. We do it for 100 plates when we only need five, to quote Thoreau. Practically speaking, the opponents to a reform at Massachusetts are not 100,000 politicians at the South, but 100,000 merchants and farmers here who are more interested in commerce and agriculture than they are in humanity and are not prepared to do justice to the slave and to Mexico cost what it may. I quarrel not with far-off foes, but with those who near at home cooperate with and do the bidding of those far away and without whom the latter would be harmless. You know, he gets more personal, which I don't know if you can get more personal than that, <laughs> but he does. He says this, there are thousands who are in opinion opposed to slavery and to the war, who yet in effect do nothing to put an end to them, who esteeming themselves children of Washington and Franklin sit down with their hands in their pockets and say that they know not what to do and they do nothing, who even postpone the question of freedom to the question of free trade and quietly read the prices current along with the latest advices from Mexico after dinner and it may be fall asleep over them both. They hesitate and they regret and sometimes they petition, but they do nothing in earnest and with effect. They will wait well disposed for others to remedy evil that they may no longer have it to regret. 
At most, they give only a cheap vote and a feeble countenance and Godspeed to the right as it goes by them. There are 9,999 patrons of virtue to one virtuous man. <laughs> That's a quote. All of that was him. Yeah, if I were in the audience, I would feel a little offended. But anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, and this is getting personal to the people of his day, uh, but it also speaks to issues of all generations. Uh, how many of us are willing to rant on Twitter to promote popular causes that all of our friends agree with, uh, you know, maybe even put out a sign or wear a T-shirt but when it comes down to lifestyle, uh, doing without a product, we enjoy uh, being uncomfortable with the current crowd, you know, taking positions that will cause us to lose our jobs over issues of conscience. Most of us would prefer just to go underground. And if we have the <laughs> privilege to have a private ballot that no one can see, we'll do that. But that's about it. And Thoreau calls voting only expressing to men feebly your desire should it prevail. <laughs> You know, Thoreau says there are 999 patrons of virtue to one virtuous man, uh, you know, if there is something real at stake. And he means there's only one in a thousand willing to do something that will cost him something that he cares about. There is little virtue in the action of masses of men. You know, and this, of course, is where you've seen leaders of men like Thoreau uh, take Thoreau at his word and act as the virtuous one man in a thousand. And by man, I mean, you know, human, not right. in the sense of gender. One example that strikes close to home for us is in the American South. It's the 40,000 men and women who walk to work instead of taking the buses in the Montgomery bus boycott. This movement contained people of all ages and children all the way to elderly men and women uh, who walked to jobs where they would work on their feet all day only to walk an hour home. And, you know, it, it didn't last a few hours or a few days. It went on for 13 straight months and causing the city of Montgomery to lose anywhere between 30,000 to 40,000 bus fares per day. It crashed the system until it broke. I mean, this was virtue and it cost thousands both African-Americans as well as white Americans, uh, it cost them significantly to follow their consciences. You know, one of Thoreau's most used rhetorical devices uh, in the essay is the rhetorical question. He's always asking questions that he thinks have obvious answers. And one of these questions was the one taken up by Dr. King in his letter from Birmingham jail. Thoreau says this, unjust laws exist. Shall we be content to obey them, or shall we endeavor to amend them and obey them until we have succeeded, or shall we transgress them at once? I mean, the obvious answer for Thoreau, and of course, a hundred years, years later for Dr. King is, well, if there is a law that violates the natural law of God, I must violate man's law before I violate my conscience and violate God's law. Let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine. Uh, this is Thoreau's battle cry, and, and uh, many have taken it up. And what a counter friction stopping the machine has l looked like is different in different contexts throughout the world. And in many cases, uh, it's been successful because the friction awakened the consciousness of a nation. You know, this is what happened in the United States with the civil rights movement, and it's what happened in South Africa and later in India with Gandhi. That's because both Great Britain and America value freedom as well as valuing human life. You know, 
But there are places that do not hold those values in high regard, and this is where Thoreau's ideas would fall on deaf ears. Um, and unfortunately, there are many examples where stopping the machine caused death and the government completely disregarded. Uh, what Thoreau is advocating here is very dangerous. You know, in Nazi Germany, for example, uh, the Germans who stood up to Hitler were dealt with swiftly, and the government in Myanmar also fired on its own people when students resisted the seizing of the government by the military. You know, and Thoreau can say this. I mean, he's living in a place of relative safety. He's advocating for something that he doesn't actually have to put his life on the line for, although many will, listening to his words and have followed him. He says this, Under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is also a prison. Cast your whole vote, not a strip of paper merely, but your whole influence. A minority is powerless while it conforms to the majority. It is not even a minority then, but it is irresistible when it clogs by its whole weight. If the alternative is to keep all just men in prison or give up war and slavery, the state will not hesitate which to choose. If a thousand men were not to pay their tax bills this year, would that not be a violent and bloody measure? as it would be to pay them and enable the state to commit violence and shed innocent blood. This is, in fact, the definition of a peaceable revolution, if any such thing is possible. Well, you know, this is dangerous advice for a leader. Uh, in 1906, the British government passed a law in Transvaal today that is part of South Africa, but it wasn't then. This law stated that all Asians older than eight had to carry a registration certificate with them at all times. And this ID card could be demanded by any policeman at any time. This was called the Black Act. It was a racist policy targeting a very specific segment of the population. A young activist lawyer named Gandhi, having read the these very words, written by Thoreau, moved to Johannesburg uh, to oppose the new law. Thousands of Chinese and Indian workers attended meetings, and they vowed not to submit to the Black Act, no matter the consequences. And this vow, called the Satyagraha Oath, began a campaign that would last eight years. General Smuts, and I did not make that name up. <laughs> Irony. General Smuts, the man in charge, was not going to give in, and Gandhi, uh, along with many others, were arrested on multiple occasions, uh, one time for as long as two months. And This struggle took eight years. One particular event that put friction in the machine was when 2,000 law-abiding Asians of various ethnicities publicly burned their registration certificate, causing a local British writer to compare the event to the Boston Tea Party in the in the paper. I mean, it finally worked after eight years of struggle, negotiation, broken promises, and civil disobedience. A tax was repealed. Muslim and Hindu marriages were legalized. Educated Indians were allowed entrance into South Africa, and the Black Act was abolished. Wow. Gandhi was asked at the time if he had read Civil Disobedience, and this is what he said. Why? Of course I read Thoreau. I read Walden first in Johannesburg in South Africa in 1906, and his ideas influenced me greatly. I adopted some of them and recommended the study of Thoreau to all my friends who were helping me in the cause of Indian independence. Why, I actually took the name of my movement from Thoreau's essay on the duty of civil disobedience. <laughs> Gandhi's movement was ultimately called Satyagraha, which is Sanskrit for 
truth force, which is still conceptually connected. The middle part of Thoreau's essay is a narrative. It's the story of his night in jail. And of course, his night in jail is nothing like Gandhi's experience. It's not even like Dr. King's experience. In fact, you know, to compare them may seem a little silly, but in principle, uh, it's the same thing. Let's read it. I have paid no poll tax for six years. I was put into a jail once on this account for one night. And as I stood considering the walls of solid stone, two or three feet thick, the door of wood and iron, a foot thick, and the iron grating which strained the light, I could not help being struck with the foolishness of that institution, which treated me as if I were mere flesh and blood and bones to be locked up. I wonder that it should have concluded at length that this was the best use it could put me to, and had never thought to avail itself of my services in some way. I saw that, if there was a wall of stone between me and my townsmen, there was a still more difficult one to climb or break through before they could get to be as free as I was. I did not for a moment feel confined, and the wall seemed a great waste of stone and mortar. I felt as if I alone, of all my townsmen, had paid my tax. (laughs) So, you know, here Thoreau is. He's been out at Walton. He's living in his cottage, looking at the lake. And he hasn't paid his poll tax in six years. Sam Staples, he's the local tax assessor and jailer. He'd known this. He'd known this for years. And he just kind of ignored, you know, Thoreau. Why bother? He's this town weirdo, right? You know, if I make a big deal about it, he's going to make a big deal about it. So Staples had just ignored, you know, this defiance of Thoreau's. But Thoreau is getting more and more vocal at this point about his condemnation of the Mexican-American War and the government in general. And I guess, you know, this irritated Staples to the degree that he sees him out one day. I mean, Thoreau is on his way to the cobbler. He says he needed to repair his shoes. And Staples just approached him and asked him to pay his back taxes. Thoreau refused, and so Staples threw him in jail. (laughs) Well, we should probably clarify that jail in Concord was not a scary experience for Thoreau. Um, Compared to what Gandhi or Nelson Mandela endured, or even what uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is experiencing even at this moment, this is Mayberry, uh, you know, to use an allusion to the Andy Griffith show. And the jail in Concord was not like the jail here in Memphis or in any other major city in the world. And he describes the jail rooms as being whitewashed, neatly furnished, probably the neatest apartment in town. And, you know, and Thoreau describes his roommate as a first rate fellow who showed him where he could hang his hat and who was likely in jail for getting drunk, smoking his pipe in his barn, and burning it down. They were all well-fed. Yeah, that's not the same experience as a lot of prisoners in a lot of parts of the world. And Thoreau compared his night in jail. Let me read what he says. He he compares it to, quote, traveling into a far country such as I had never expected to behold to lie there for one night. You know, Thoreau's night in jail, really just like the Walden experiment, is a piece of performance art. I mean, it's not life-threatening like we see with Gandhi in South Africa or dissidents in in other parts of the world who have really put their life on the line. When the morning came, Thoreau was kicked out of the jail against his will. He Uh wanted to stay. Someone had anonymously paid his tax for him, and this irritated him. He had to leave. Interesting enough, we really aren't sure who paid his tax, 
Most experts believe it was his Aunt Maria Thoreau, but we really don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Thoreau wanted to raise awareness, and Sam Staples had provided him a perfect opportunity. Um, To that point, after he got out of jail, guess what he went to do? Got his shoes. And he went to a Huckleberry party. (laughs) I think we need to explain what a Huckleberry party is. I've never even eaten a Huckleberry, and I certainly haven't attended a Huckleberry party. Well, Huckleberries are a variety of wild berries that's native uh, to his part of the country. And in this case, friends would just get together picking Huckleberries, and uh, that would be the pretense to hang out. It was a fun activity. So, yes, Thorough left jail and walked back into his regular life unscathed, unlike Gandhi did. Uh, But I want to point out that Gandhi didn't hold that against Thoreau because he understood his point, and he believed that Thoreau was illustrating uh, could actually be done on a broad scale with a positive result. After Gandhi uh, led the burning of the certificates, he was arrested and sentenced to the Volksrust prison. In prison, he worked all day, and in the morning he would read, Part of his reading included this essay, including Thoreau's thoughts from that night in jail. And there was a parallel that Gandhi identified between their experiences. Gandhi said that in jail, the necessities of life are provided for and the soul is left free. He said that the body is restrained, but not the soul. And a malevolent warden only taught himself control. He said this, The reader of this, my second experience of life in a Transvaal jail, will be convinced that the real road to ultimate happiness lies in going to jail and undergoing sufferings and privations there in the interest of one's country and religion. You know, Gandhi agrees with Thoreau that under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is also a prison. In uh, Thoreau's world, he was speaking for others besides himself. Um, the proper place today, the only place in which Massachusetts is provided for her freer and less desponding spirits is in her prisons to be put out and locked out of the state by her own act as they have already put themselves out by principles. It is there that the fugitive slave, the Mexican prisoner on parole, and the Indian come to please the wrongs of his race. He goes on to say that a prison is the only house in a slave state in which a free man can abide with honor. And I do want to circle back around to Thoreau's criteria for determining when we should violate the law and allow ourselves to be thrown in prison. Thoreau firmly believed that men should read the wisdom of the past and find their convictions and live by them. It comes down to conscience, he says that over and over again, and then having the strength of character to withstand the corruption that comes with the financial side of it. Before he got to his night in jail, he says this, quote, But the rich man, not to make any invidious comparison, is always sold to the institution which makes him rich. Absolutely speaking, the more money, the less virtue. For money comes between a man and his objects and obtains them for him. He goes on to say, Thus, his moral high ground is taken from under his feet. The opportunities of living are diminished in proportion as what are called the means are increased. The best thing a man can do for his culture when he is rich is to endeavor to carry out those schemes which he entertained when he was poor. 
He goes on to tell a Bible story about when Jesus asked the Herodians to pull out a coin and to look on their faces, and he explains this really in biblical uh, parallel. You know, Thoreau was extremely well-versed in biblical text as well as classical text, but also Hindu philosophy, to the point that Gandhi identified these Hindu roots. And I find it kind of ironic that Thoreau read Hindu philosophy and Americanized it, and Gandhi received it back from America, you know, something that was largely Indian philosophy and reintroduced it first in South Africa and then back in India itself. So <laughs> it traveled a long time. Yeah. You know, but to your main point, uh, and this is something that Thoreau, Gandhi, and Dr. King all point to, and let me quote Thoreau here. Truth is always in harmony with itself. Which is why, you know, that anecdote about going back to the Huckleberry Party, you know, it's funny, uh, but it's not really a throwaway comment. After spending a night in jail, Thoreau went back to nature. In a sense, you know, he's realigning himself to where he found truth. He realigned himself to his own moral center. And finding that moral center is what he's talking about. That's the heart of this essay. Quote, they who know of no pure sources of truth, who have traced up its stream no higher, stand and wisely stand by the Bible and the Constitution and drink it there with reverence and humility. But they who behold where it comes tricking into this lake or that pool, gird up their loins once more and continue their pilgrimage toward its fountain. Wow, that's kind of metaphorical, you know. <laughs> uh, he clarifies himself in the paragraphs that follow. Um, he's going to say that's a problem with politicians, and let me quote him. If we were left solely to the wordy wit of legislators in Congress for our guidance, uncorrected by the seasonable experience and the effectual complaints of the people, America would not long retain her rank among the nations. Right, and that there will never be a really free and enlightened state until the state comes to recognize the individual as a higher and independent power from which all its own power and authority are derived and treats him accordingly. I please myself with imagining a state at last which can afford to be just to all men and to treat the individual with respect as a neighbor, which even would not think it inconsistent with its own repose. If a few were to live aloof from it, not meddling with it nor embraced by it, who fulfilled all the duties of neighbors and fellow men, a state which bore this kind of fruit and suffered it to drop off as fast as it ripened, would prepare the way for a still more perfect and glorious state, which also I have imagined, but not yet anywhere seen. You know, like most good rhetoric, I was reading there from the end of the speech, but he looks to the future, he projects. And, you know, here he's been called idealistic because he wants to imagine a world that, as he said from the beginning, there could be a thing where you really don't even need government. <laughs> Well, and I would like to put out one more uh, circle of life irony here in Thoreau. This idea of the value of the individual and self-rule, we inherited from the British. It comes to Thoreau. Thoreau sends it back to India through Gandhi. They become independent of the British Empire. So there you go, <laughs> the cycle of life. And, you know, his ideas, they're definitely idealistic, uh, but that is the nature of vision casting, I mean, isn't it? And um, he's not solving the how question, he's throwing out a goal. And for Thoreau, um, as he says, from beginning to end, the power of humanity resides not in any state 
but in the individual and the power of the individual must be unleashed for the common good. You know, that is what has made democracy the form of government that's raised more people out of poverty around the world than any other form of government. When we uh, respect the individual, we release good individuals to make great things. And his line about imagining a state which can afford to be just to all men and to treat the individual with respect as a neighbor is the goal. Now, you know, just how to do that in a world with a diversity of values, a diversity of truths, and many of which stand diametrically opposed each other. I mean, you know, it's not the world of Concord. No. Uh, it is more the world of Mahatma Gandhi. And so the final word will not rest with Henry David Thoreau, but his was one of the first words. And for that, we owe him a great debt. Yes, I think we do. Well, thanks for listening. Um, if you enjoyed it, please consider sharing our podcast or liking this episode on your social media, Facebook, Instagram, link, Twitter, you know, the whole thing. Text it to a friend. Also, if you're a teacher, uh, recommend us to fellow teachers, uh, your students, or just listen together in class. And remember, we have listening guides for most of our episodes on our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com, where you can also purchase merchandise or connect via email. Remember, when you share, we grow. Peace out. Peace out.